Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and for this episode, we're leaving the studio and going on location to Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. Last week, I had the honor of speaking to the students of the college and seminary during chapel. It was a busy time in the life of the school as everyone prepared for hosting the Godward Life Conference that weekend. But we had a chance before that busyness to pause and consider some profound words from the first epistle of John. In this episode, I want to share the live recording of that talk, which covered the end of 1 John 2 and the beginning of 1 John 3. In that text, John engages one of the most profound questions you'll ever ask yourself, who am I? Let's find out what he has to say. I appreciate the introduction. I'm not going to take this opportunity to plug my crime novels, but I do want to address the elephant in the room, which is the tension between uh, the role of crime novelist and the role of pastor. A lot of people think it's a little bit strange that you would have a pastor who spends so much time meditating on murder. I always think those people don't know many pastors, because in my experience, it's not strange at all. Most pastors I am aware of spend a lot of time meditating on murder, but not in a fictional context. Uh, There you go. When I was asked to speak to you, uh, I was given the text to speak. And in God's providence, it is a text that I cherish. And it's a delight to be able to speak to you about these words from 1 John. Uh, So let's begin by hearing what John has to say to us. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father, as we contemplate these words. We earnestly pray that your spirit would illuminate them to us, light up the meaning to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. I can relate to what you're going through right now because as an undergraduate, I endured many a chapel service. Uh, That was 35 years ago, a long time, and yet to this day, I vividly remember how long they felt. So much so that I remember sitting in chapel and making a promise to myself that one day, if against all odds, I was ever invited to come and speak at chapel, what I would do is I would go up to the pulpit, I would announce that I was done, and the chapel was over. (laughs) That is a promise that I don't intend to keep. (laughs) I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, 
What happened? <laughs> like, why did I turn my back on that feeling? Um, probably because I, I no longer believe we have enough time for shenanigans like that, that we need all the chapel that we can get. And maybe I learned that lesson uh, in grad school. And I went to grad school, studied creative writing, did my MFA in creative writing. And in grad school, we didn't have chapel. Because in grad school, we didn't have theology. What we had was theory, with a capital T. Uh, we didn't have Calvin, we didn't have Edwards, we didn't have Piper, we had Derrida, we had Bart, we had Foucault, and we had Lacan. And believe me, we revered them just as much as any theological student has ever revered a theologian. We had modern thoughts, and in modern thought class, which might as well have been called Introduction to Nietzsche, I came to terms with something I'd never understood. Obviously, growing up in the church, I knew that Nietzsche was famous for saying God is dead, and, and yet it was Nietzsche, of course, who was dead. But I never really appreciated <laughs> what Nietzsche meant when he said that God was dead. He was, of course, talking about the idea of God. He didn't believe in a literal God, just an idea that had been made up that we no longer needed because we had advanced beyond the need for such primitive myths. Along with the death of God, I was introduced to, for me, a chilling thought, the death of the author as well, because once you start toppling authorities, you don't stop at the top. You keep going and going. The death of God, the death of the author, these are huge ideas, so huge that it's taken us generations to work out the implications. We're only now living with any kind of consistency to the ideas that as a culture we believed for quite a while. Now, in my MFA program, it was divided. There were two types of students. We had uh, the writers on the one hand, and then we had the, the literature people on the other. So, uh, at least in our pretensions, the people who would create the literature of the future and the people who would teach what we created. Uh, we didn't say that sort of thing out loud. But uh, the writers themselves were divided into two types. There were the fiction writers and there were the poets. And I was a fiction writer, but I envied the poets because the poets had a gift of language where they could take huge ideas and they could somehow compress them into a turn of phrase. Now, my ideas aren't huge, they're pretty pedestrian, but they unfold in paragraphs, in chapters. The idea of compressing it all down, um, I envied that. As you've studied 1 John, you might say to yourself, I think John has, through the power of the Spirit, a poetic gift. It's a short book, but it's densely packed, and there are turns of phrases here that are breathtaking. His language, his themes, do this thing that when I read him in my mind, I picture it, the way you do sometimes with music, when you hear music and you picture images. That's how this is for me. I imagine the themes kind of moving in and out of each other, themes of sin and forgiveness, of the love of the world that destroys us and the love of God that creates and recreates us. It's like a tapestry, a fabric woven out of those themes. And as the themes come back around, repeated, they develop. They get more complex. So that there's a beauty not only to the ideas of this epistle, but also to the form of the epistle as well. But then you reach this passage. And 
In this passage, the metaphor to me of the tapestry of the weaving kind of has to, to be set aside because this passage works a little bit differently. Um, it has what uh, at least some of you will be familiar with the term, a chiastic structure. But I don't like that word. I like to think of nesting dolls, right? Those uh, Russian nesting dolls where you open them up and then there's a smaller one inside, and you open that up and there's a smaller one inside until finally you reach the one that doesn't open up, but you try anyway just to be sure, and that's the core. And I think if you look at these words, they function that way. Look at the text. So the outer ring, that, that outer doll that you pull apart, the first verse and the last verse of our text use two ideas, the idea of abiding and the idea of purifying to talk about what we might call obedience. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's the, the first. And then the last. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now clearly in this text, John has an eschatological focus in mind. He's talking about his coming and what to do in anticipation of his coming. You must abide in Christ. You must purify yourself. Like the metaphor is like the metaphor of little children who have chores to do and need to get them done before the parent returns. Otherwise, you hang your head in shame. So you have to get to it. You have to do these things. But that's only the outer ring. And opening that up and looking inside, you find this inner ring. This is verse 29 of chapter 2, and then the, the second half of verse 1 of chapter 3, and then verse 2. And that's about righteousness. But not righteousness by works. It's righteousness, strangely, by birth in the first instance, and righteousness, even stranger, by sight or by reflection in the second. Now listen to the first one. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's an interesting way to put that, making righteousness sound almost like DNA, like righteousness as a thing that reveals paternity. And note that for John, righteousness doesn't lead to being born of him. Like the birth comes first and the righteousness flows. But then towards the end, it's sight and it's reflection. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So again, with the paternity thing, the world doesn't know that we're his children, because the world didn't know him. But if you think about it, what he's saying is, is essentially the world can't recognize righteousness as righteousness. It sees righteousness, but it doesn't recognize what that is. When it sees it in the Father, it doesn't see that this is righteousness. And when it sees it in the children, it doesn't recognize righteousness as well. So the world can't see the connection. It would be tempting to think that this inner ring, this, this smaller doll, is about being, about saying who we are. But again, thinking eschatologically, 
John's actually talking about something else. He says, what we will become has not yet appeared. There's a flux, there's, there's a happening in us. So yeah, he's talking about being, but being in the sense of becoming. Like what is it that we are becoming due to the fact that we are his children? Hold that thought though. I mentioned earlier the way that our program was divided and how much I envied the poets, but the poets weren't the only people I envied. I got a lot of envy. I envied those teachers as well, because these were the people who would be ambassadors of the novels that I loved. The whole reason that I wanted to write novels is that I loved them, I loved reading them. The idea of spending your whole life studying and reading these things and getting paid for it, not much, but getting paid for it, I thought that's incredible. I envy these people so much. I suffered a lot in those days from what uh, Harold Bloom called the anxiety of influence. It was hard to, to write my own stuff, and it was easy to read other people's stuff as well. Bloom says all readings are misreadings, and uh, I think that's actually a, a good maxim for those studying hermeneutics sometimes to keep in mind and be aware of. But I love novels, I love the development of the novel. If you've studied the history of the novel, you know that novels change over time. That the things we used to read and enjoy are not like the things we read and enjoy now. There have been two big trends in literature that mirror trends in culture. One of them is the move from epic heroes to ordinary protagonists. It used to be that the stories and the heroes that we cherished were about great men who did great things, who were great by birth, or who were great by merit. But the novel is all about ordinary characters who, if they're heroic, are heroic only because they've been chosen by the author to focus on. That movement, I don't think, is a bad thing. I like that about the novel. Uh, there's one critic, Ian Watt, in his book, The Rise of the Novel, who says that in order to have these kinds of stories, society must value every individual highly enough to consider him the proper subject of its serious literature. And there must be enough variety of belief and action among ordinary people for a detailed account of them to be of interest to other ordinary people, the readers of novels. As an ordinary person, I say amen to that. As a person who is called to take an interest, to love and to care for ordinary people, the idea that their lives are, are worthy of being studied and, and, and turned into art, I love it. But there's another trajectory that feels, if you'll forgive me, more problematic. It's the way that the object of our stories has changed, the way that our quest has changed, from the quest for fleeces and grails to the quest to find yourself. I'm old enough to remember when I was suddenly being assigned novels where the whole purpose was to find oneself. I remember thinking, how does one lose oneself in the first place? Isn't one always with oneself? And, and feeling very smug making these observations. Uh, these days, I don't feel that smug anymore because this idea of having lost the self is so prevalent in our culture, in our experience, and it feels like we're all asking forms of that question. We're all on that kind of a quest, it seems. But there is a problem because of that death of God thing. 
because the death of God means there is no transcendent meaning. Like meaning and purpose can't be fixed to any sort of uh, standard outside of ourselves. The only meaning that exists is what we make for ourselves. And if that's the reality that, that we live in, then the quest for self becomes really difficult. Joseph Epstein wrote that destiny is the supra-theme of every powerful novel. But if there is no God, there's no meaning, there's no destiny either. And uh, we're left with a project. As modern people have attempted to pursue this quest of finding the self, we've realized, or at least come to believe, that the self is not there to be found the self is not given because there is no giver to give it. Instead, the self has to be invented. And so the project of Noel has become the human project. It's the project of self-invention. This may sound empowering. We are all main characters now, but we are all also our own authors. And uh, although it's easy to publish a book, it's not easy to write it well. And that's true in fiction, but sadly it's true in self-invention as well. Some people find this thought exhilarating. The idea that nothing is given, that everything is there for us to invent, that we can create ourselves. But some people, and honestly often the same people, find it terrifying as well. Talk about John's tapestry, but there's another tapestry that's all around us. If John's hangs on one wall, we might see this other tapestry hangs on the opposite wall, facing it, the antithesis, as it were. That's the fabric that the world around us is weaving, threading its own themes in and out, back and forth, over and over, a picture depicting the world as we understand the world to be. From the perspective of 21st century Western culture, human society, at least here, is at the apex of its development. Things have gotten as good as they've ever been in human history. No age has been more enlightened than this age. No generation is more moral than this generation. According to our own philosophy, we live in the best of all possible worlds, or at least as close as humans have ever gotten to the best of all possible worlds. They could only dream of the kind of progress that we take for granted. That's one of the best that the world is always weaving, freedom. We enjoy freedom that they could only dream of, or honestly couldn't, unprecedented. But there's another thread that's woven in there, a different thread, I'm going to call this the threat of trauma. Because although we live in what by our own standards must be a paradise, we don't seem to experience our paradise as if it is one. Even though our values are more realized in culture than they ever have been before, people aren't happier than they've ever been before. The psychiatrists are not closing shop. Therapists are not switching majors over to English because everyone's happy now and they just want to read novels for the rest of their lives. It's the opposite, strangely. 
Even though we've gotten more of what we think we want than we've ever had before, we don't experience our freedom as freedom. We experience it as trauma. We have somehow woven a utopia that is obsessed with dystopia, or maybe it's a dystopia obsessed with utopia. I don't know, who am I to say? But freedom and trauma, trauma and freedom, in and out, the warp and woof of the modern self. I mentioned Harold Bloom, interesting. Bloom thought Augustine, St. Augustine, our guy, invented the self in his book, The Confessions. He thinks that before Augustine, no one really had a concept of the self. And there's a part of me that wants to believe that the Apostle Paul might have agreed, because he seems to think the self can only be known in relation to God. So it would be, make sense that it, in this tradition, the self, the knowledge of self, might emerge. Uh, you probably are aware that in the famous opening lines of Calvin's Institutes, Calvin himself makes this point. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And he goes on to qualify, but as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. But if we cannot know God, how can we know ourselves? And now go back to John's words, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, righteousness, but righteousness by seeing, by reflecting. That's the same beautiful metaphor that Paul uses at the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Knowledge transforms, and knowledge comes by sight. You look and you see, and you become. James, in his brief book, compares people who know the law but don't do it to a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he saw. And I think our society, our freedom and our trauma make a similar kind of move, right? Praising our ideology and then turning away to lament the world that our ideology has created. But imagine looking not at yourself, but at Christ. Imagine looking at him face to face. Imagine that perfect knowledge. Paul says that day, will come and says, when it does, we shall be like him. Which brings us to the tiniest doll, to the core of the text. And to make it the core of this text is a little bit like saying the core of the epistle itself. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Those words are written by John with such wonder and such awe, such beauty, that this passage, as I said, is one that, that I've carried with me for a long time because of that phrase, and so we are. John holds up the Father's love for adoration, and then he uses the fact of the Father's love to explain to us who we are. Yes, who we are. We're not just called God's children, 
We are God's children. If God calls us children, so we are. I had a professor who believed very strongly in the power of bad examples to teach. Good examples you can never aspire to, but if you know a bad example, you'll always remember it and you'll try to avoid that catastrophic outcome. And so I want to share a bad example with you. Uh, Hollywood gave it to me. It's the 2006 movie Blood Diamond, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as a self-interested mercenary pretending to be a journalist so that he can steal a blood diamond. It's uh, a terrible and wonderful movie that I use in class because it illustrates two ideas, Hollywood redemption and real redemption, and demonstrates which of the two has more power. Now, if you don't know, Hollywood redemption is a necessity in any script. The idea of Hollywood redemption is that every character has a hang-up Every character has a backstory with some sort of flaw, and in order to move on in that character's development, they have to resolve that hang-up. So if a character at the beginning of the movie tells you something like, you know, I hate snakes, then by the end of the movie, he's going to find himself in a subterranean chamber full of snakes, because that's how Hollywood does redemption. You confront the thing you're afraid of, and you move beyond it. In this movie, that's exactly what happens. This terrible man has to confront the fact that he's not very nice in order to move on. In fact, there's a scene where he meets with a wise man, and they talk about the nature of human beings, and the two of them agree. People aren't good or evil. People are just people. It's what they do that makes them good or evil. That who they are is determined by their choices, that their choices create their identity. Side by side with that plot, there's another plot, real redemption. There's a father, uh, Solomon Vandy, in the movie, who's being exploited because he's the guy who found the diamond. He doesn't care anything about finding and recovering diamonds. His son has been kidnapped and forced to become a child soldier, and he's on the journey to recover his lost son. Now, both of those quests find their solution at the same time. They find the diamond and the son at the same time, and things go terribly wrong in ways that I won't spoil for you. But there's a moment where this father has to speak to his son and essentially reclaim him. And the words that he speaks are this. He says, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. You are my son, and you will come home with me. And it's interesting because in that picture of redemption, you have exactly the opposite of what the movies told us redemption is. It's told us our choices make us who we are. Our actions determine our identity. But now here's a father saying, no, it's not like that at all. I know they made you do bad things. You have done bad things. But those bad things don't determine who you are. He says, you are my son. So in that picture of redemption, what forms identity is not choices, it's naming. It's the word of the father claiming ownership of the child. This is what John is talking about at the core here, how to find who we are. In the prologue to his gospel, John makes the same point. He says, 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not a right you earn by physical birth. It's not a right you earn by an act of will. God speaks you his child. He says you are his child, and so you are. The self is not discovered. The self cannot be constructed either. The self can only be revealed. You know yourself. You know who you are. When he has named you, you will know yourself and what you are to become when you see him face to face. I want to thank the staff and students of Bethlehem College and Seminary for their hospitality. I had a wonderful time getting to know them all. And I want to thank you, too, for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.